As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Wendy. And I'm Jess, and you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast. Your online resource for inclusive and accessible wellness. Welcome back to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast. We have a special treat for you all. If you've been listening to our pod over the last few months, we have been doing different series and we are going to continue that with a relationship series. I know you might be thinking y'all are a wellness slash nutrition podcast. Why are you diving into relationships? And the answer is because relationships are interesting <laughs> and if we don't switch it up, we ain't going to be doing the podcast anymore. So, But also why. it affects, you know, it can affect health and wellness, like Absolutely. the person who you're with, how you're feeling um, about yourself within the context of love. I think it's all related. <laughs> I yeah, feel like anything could be tied to wellness. It's definitely, yeah, it, it can all be tied to wellness. And yeah, we've been doing this since 2015. So you got to do new things. We're so excited. This is probably the the most excited I've been about a series. Yes, you all are going to love this interview. We talked with Ty Tashiro, who's an author, social scientist, and relationship expert. His first book, which is The Science of Happily Ever After, shows how our decision-making abilities falter when it comes to choosing mates and how insights from social science can help us make smarter decisions when it comes to dating. He has a PhD in psychology, so he knows his stuff. He's also an award-winning professor at the University of Maryland and the University of Colorado. Yes. And this conversation was so good that we had to break it up into two different episodes. So the first episode is The Algorithm of Happily Ever After. What I loved most about Ty is everything is based on research because there's so many people out there who are, quote, experts, and it's based on I don't know, like anecdotal evidence, meaning this is like what happened for me or my grandma, but his is based on the science. We get into what does happily ever after even mean? What is the state of modern dating and marriage? Why we'll only get our top three things on our wish list when choosing a partner? What the ideal traits are when you're looking for somebody and hint, it's not money and it's not looks. 
And hint, money and looks are less important than you think they are. And what he thinks about the concept of a soulmate. This episode is packed with so many gems, so you're definitely going to want to make sure to listen to it all. In addition to this episode kicking off the series, we are going to talk with a matchmaker. We're talking to the woman who founded The Broom List, which is the first and only matchmaker dedicated to Black professionals. We're then going to talk to the author of How Not to Die Alone. She is a behavioral scientist and the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge. I've heard her on other podcast episodes, and she is amazing and has all the facts on how to optimize your online dating profile. And then, of course, sometimes relationships don't work out. So we don't want to just talk about finding love and how to maintain love, but we're going to talk about divorce and what life after divorce looks like and special considerations. We had so many ideas for episodes within the series, but we had to limit it to just five. So if you really like this series, let us know because we can do a part two. Some of the other topics that we had in mind are being single and how being single is underrated and highlighting that more. We also want to talk about non-traditional relationships like polyamorous relationships. So send us a DM and let us know if you're interested in diving even further. This week for the giveaway, we are going to be giving away five copies of Ty's first book, which is The Science of Happily Ever After. This book really goes into how our decision-making abilities falter when it comes to choosing mates and how insights from social science can help us make smarter decisions. In order to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. Make sure to tag us and mention what's one thing that you enjoyed from this episode. Once you share the episode, make sure to DM us and let us know that you are entering the giveaway. All you have to do is say giveaway tie to Shiro and we'll know exactly what you mean and we'll enter you in. All right, y'all, before we get into today's episode, want to highlight a listener review. This is from Sophia Humble, and they write, I really appreciate how funny, kind, and well-researched Food Heaven is. It's such a welcoming space that helps me learn and reflect on my own habits. I love the guests they bring on, too. Thank you, Sophia Humble, for leaving that really, really nice review. If you haven't already, please go on iTunes. You can also go on Spotify and drop some stars. Leave some kind words if you are on iTunes. We read all of them. So we really appreciate it. And we're going to get into this week's episode. In one of your TED Talks, you say that love stories that live happily ever after seem harder than ever. And I feel like I would agree. <laughs> but can you elaborate on that? And just what is the state of modern dating and marriage from your perspective? Yeah, sure. It's uh, Sometimes it can feel like things are harder than ever. And I know in my own life, just among friends and colleagues, like everyone's like, gosh, it's so hard to date right now. And so part of it was just curiosity. And unfortunately, there's a long history of romance. And so anthropologists and sociologists can provide actually fact-based things about how romance went over the course of centuries or even the past 5,000 years. We have some evidence staying back that far. So I, I say it's hard right now for a, a number of reasons. One, if you just look at the number of people who are coupled in long-term relationships, it's never been lower than it's been over the past 10 years. So that as a starting point suggests that, hmm, and maybe something's a little more difficult about this because when you ask people, 
do you want to be in a lifelong partnership? 92% of people say yes, they do. And uh, among people who are still single at any age, the majority of those folks want to be in a relationship. So it's not that people's interest in being in a relationship has waned. It's rather that there's something that seems to be more difficult about it. I think there's a number of factors that, that go into that. And one thing that seems to be more difficult that we're still wrestling with, of course, is online dating and uh, the app dating. You know, believe it or not, when I first started writing the, the book for The Science Happily Ever After, it was about 10 years ago, nine, nine, 10 years ago. App dating wasn't even a thing at that time, which is stunning. So when we did the, the second edition, I couldn't believe that that hadn't been a thing just 10 years ago. So we have this new technology. It's a source of great frustration mm. <laughs> for a lot of folks. I mean, I, I support people using it. It's a great way to obviously increase the number of potential partners that you could meet. But sure, it's a frustrating process for a lot of folks. And one of the things, and we get into this a little bit more as, as we go on, but the interface itself kind of encourages some of our worst behavior, <laughs> I think, when it comes to making wise choices about a partner. And also just the way we interact with each other, I, I think, is less civil on some of these platforms. So I think I think that's one problem. Another thing that's happening is that, and I think this is a good thing, so don't get me wrong, <laughs> I think this is a very good thing. Women have so much more opportunity now. And obviously, there's still a ways to go on on a lot of things. But compared to, let's say, like the 1950s, women are much more empowered than they used to be. And so when it comes to heterosexual relationships, that has disrupted the balance of power. And I am all about that. <laughs> I think that's, that's nothing but good. But there's another thing where we're still in this period of adjustment, where we have some of those old narratives still lingering around about kind of a one-size-fits-all for relationships. And then there's this more progressive way of viewing relationships. And I think people should be able to do what they want to do. But that also then creates a little bit of complexity that wasn't there before. So I could keep going on and on about, yeah. <laughs> about this topic, but those are a couple of things. As dietitians and diabetes educators, we have talked a lot about the benefits of getting regular blood testing. And that's why I am so excited to talk to you about our latest podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. To get an accurate picture of what's going on with your health, you really have to understand what's going on inside. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity from the most trusted and relevant source, your body. They use data from your blood, DNA, and fitness trackers to give you personalized and science-backed recommendations on things that you can do to optimize your health. For example, food, supplements, workouts, lifestyle choices, including ways to optimize sleep and stress, which if y'all haven't listened to our burnout series, this is something that Jess and I have particularly struggled with these past few months. Inside Tracker tests for over 40 biomarkers like magnesium, vitamin D, testosterone, cortisol, and ferritin. And they also provide optimal ranges so that you understand where your results fall. What I love most is that they have a strict science-backed approach to everything that they do. So if your specific biomarker level is not optimized, they give you recommendations that are backed by dozens of peer-reviewed studies and they're personalized to you. 
This process was set in place by their founders that include experts in aging, genetics, biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. For a limited time, you get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you sign up at insidetracker.com forward slash food heaven. So if you are ready to get a clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then you should visit insidetracker.com forward slash food heaven. All right, we're going to get back to the episode. With what you're saying, I'm just wondering with online dating, do you feel like it is setting us back when it comes to getting to know people? Or do you feel like it's the way that we approach online dating and kind of like you said, like the behaviors that we put out when we are online dating because we're behind a phone versus like interacting with someone in person? Because it's like online dating... I think it's here to stay. <laughs> I think it's going to become a lot more ingrained in our culture. And so, you know, it's like, well, how do we use it in a smarter, more humane way so that it can work for people? Because I agree. It's like it's so frustrating. You know, when I was on the apps, I'm like, oh, my God, it's almost like you have to go through this to meet someone now. Whereas mm-hmm. before that wasn't the case. Yeah, it seems like kind of the only option available sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but I'm in the old meet cutes and in real life kinds of meetings. It seems really rare to hear those now, but it would be nice to have that option. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's a broader problem with technology in general. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly on social media, for example, people are yeah. having some fatigue and <laughs> difficulties <laughs> with that as well. You know, yeah. <laughs> You know, online dating is just another manifestation of this, I think. I'll give you just a couple things, though, that I I think are critical when it comes to online dating. You know, one one of the biggest issues is how physical attractiveness is so (laughs) the main feature of a lot of these interfaces. So if you just think about the user experience, you know, over the years, what's happened, obviously, it's gotten to things like Tinder or these swiping apps where the thing that's visible on your phone is really just the picture, some made up name <laughs> somebody has, maybe their age, where they're located, maybe, maybe their job or something like that. But, you know, people will make decisions based solely on that picture, which is basing the decision then solely on physical attractiveness. Someone did a really great analysis of hinge data, and they looked at the thousands of hinge users and how they interfaced with the app. And one of the kind of simple questions they asked, I thought was a really interesting one, which was how long do people spend before they swipe? So say, yes, you're a possibility or no, you're not. And it was only about two seconds (laughs) that they spent on each person. Obviously, if you kind of think through, so what were you able to look at in two seconds? It's pretty much just the picture, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes, and this is really the second point, The apps have made us view dating as now this thing of abundance where the grass is always greener. Mm -hmm. And so we don't treat potential partners like this rare resource or, you know, something that's that's really special to find. It's become more this almost gamified, almost like commodity. I hate to use that term because that sounds so objectifying, but I think that's partly what that does then. You know, if you feel like there's just these infinite possibilities, if you perceive that's the case, that's a medium then for some bad behavior or some Mm -hmm. some less than optimal behavior. So I think there's the the quantity problem. And then there's also the issue then of the interface itself and 
just really not encouraging us to focus on the things that matter the most. Yeah. We're actually having the behavioral scientist from Hinge on the podcast as part of this series. I don't know by the time this airs, if that episode will have aired already, but we will get some great data from them as well in terms of, you know, what's going on behind the swipes and just optimizing profiles and things like that. But in terms of happily ever after, right? Because we're sold the stories, you know, Disney movies. What does that even mean anymore? Or is it something that's like unique to each individual and you have to figure that out for yourself? Yeah. Huh, that's that's a great question. No one's asked me that question, actually. So we still do have it for sure, even though some of the childhood fairy tales, things began Disney, for example, I think have evolved in like some some healthier ways, less gender stereotype ways, for example. The notion of happily ever after still exists, goes back really hundreds of years. It, and it's really actually we can kind of pinpoint it, it goes back to the late 1880s. So just a short history here, but for most of the history of romantic partnerships, it was just this really pragmatic kind of arrangement. It was usually based on strengthening families, ties, or, or power. A lot of times there were economics involved. So, you know, there would be livestock and land involved in these marriages, for example, that were oftentimes arranged by folks in the community. It wasn't really until the really the late 1800s where the romantic movement, which pervaded art and music and all kinds of other things, people had this actually unique notion that the moral life, the ethical life was one full of powerful emotion. That not to experience powerful emotion was actually to waste your potential as a human being, which was actually this really novel kind of concept. Well, this also pervaded the way we viewed romantic relationships as well. And so, believe it or not, around that time, that's where we start to see people not only saying that it should be your preference, but that's actually your moral imperative to find this happily ever after, this euphoric experience that's going to endure for decades, really. And I think what we found over the last 140 years or so, that's really hard to do. <laughs> if not, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it is really hard to do. And it doesn't really coincide with, I think, what's realistic and, and healthy. So I think it's good to say, hey, I want a relationship that's going to be very satisfying. Maybe not euphoric at all times, butterfly in the stomach, kind of happy, but really satisfying. And it's going to endure for whatever that means to you. And for most folks, that still means for, for a lifetime. So a lot of researchers, that's what they look at. They look at, is the relationship happy? Does the relationship stay intact? And that kind of maps on the happily ever after. But, you know, when you look at how many people actually find happily ever after, it's it's gets a little bit depressing. So <laughs> what, what yeah. are the numbers on that? <laughs> well, okay. It's not great. So the divorce rate for first marriages <laughs> is about, in the low 40%. So 41 to 43% is the divorce rate for first marriages. Mm. Now, there were some clever sociologists at Harvard who were like, hey, wait a second. There's a lot of people who never file for divorce, so they don't get counted. But for all intents and purposes, they'll never see each other again. They're going to live separate lives, but they just don't legally divorce. That's an additional 10 to 15% of marriages will end that way. So permanent separation. 
So conservatively, we could say about, let's say, 51% of relationships aren't ever after. Another about 8 to 10% of relationships are chronically unhappy. So more years are unhappy than happy in the marriage. And so if we kind of add that all up, your chances of finding happily ever after are about 40%, which doesn't sound great. And I always like to say I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And this, in this sense, I guess 40% full kind of guy. But that does mean that 40% of people have this happily ever after idea in mind, let's say a reasonable version of that, and are actually making it happen. And that's incredible that they do that. And we all probably know some couples who are older adults and they, they made it to that happily ever after. And you sit there and you talk to them and you just realize how rare that is for folks to find that. You realize all the work too, mm -hmm. right? That went into making that happen over the course of decades. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that those rates actually make sense <laughs> because, you know, I, I think especially now people are getting married older. I think that might change things, you know, when it comes to like statistics too, just like knowing yourself a little bit better and what your needs are. But even this whole concept of like, I mean, I'm not happy 100% of the time, just me alone. I can't imagine like adding another person into the mix. And so I feel like that whole concept needs to be reframed and like just something that's, you know, like you said, more rooted in reality in thinking about like, I don't know, things that people should consider for having long lasting, healthy marriages. What do you think is helpful? Like, is there research about maybe the age, like maybe getting married a little bit later in life or I don't know, other things that might skew the rates to be more in favor of you know, sustaining the relationship. Yeah, your hypothesis about that is a great one. So age, that does matter in some unintuitive ways, I think. But what is common sense is there's a, a cliff actually around 19 and 20 years old. So if you marry under 20, yeah, not great. <laughs> not, great on, not great on average. So uh, probably doesn't surprise many folks. Now some, you know, small percentage will make it, but that's not not great. It seems to be if you get kind of into the mid 20s around, you know, 26, 27, you get some additional protective benefit for finding a happily ever after. But it's not it's not huge, you know, at, at that point. But yeah, you know, kind of getting to and I think the your intuition about why that would be the case seems to pan out in the data. So it's like you just know yourself better. You've been through some tough things in life and you've you've made it through, built some resilience. But you also know what you want from a partner and what actually might be important to you. And I think we also, I know for me, at least, as I got through my mid-20s, I got just more graceful with people and just more understanding that, hey, nobody, none of us are perfect. And it's not about like, it's, it's, you get less selfish too, I think. And so that's more this attitude of like, hey, how can we help each other out here? rather than how can we be maximally happy <laughs> at all times. So yeah, age can certainly be a good thing. You know, one of the things that I've been interested in is just the notion that people don't think about relationship problems sometimes uh, until they're already in a long-term relationship or a committed relationship. And there's a lot of things you can do actually when you're just choosing a partner, whether it's on that app or the early days of dating, they're actually really predictive of your likelihood of finding a happily ever after. 
So I think if people can pay attention to the traits and characteristics that actually matter in a great partner, that's one of the most important things that they can do. What are those traits? <laughs> so there, there's, there's a handful. You know, in the book, I go through nine different things. So let's, let's use maybe personality as an example here. So there's really dozens of different personality traits. For your listeners, they could probably think about some of their own personality traits or the personality traits they might want in a partner. And quickly, that list could, could add up to a lot of different things. Researchers over the past couple of decades have taken a close look at this. And they're really clever studies where they'll recruit participants when they're still single. And they get personality assessments on them, sometimes before they've even met their partner. And what they do then is they track those people over the course of decades. So now some of these studies are 30 or 40 years old, and they can say, if you had certain personality traits before you ever met anybody, what were the odds that you would end up in a happy and stable relationship 20 years later? And believe it or not, just based on people's personality traits from when they were single, you can really powerfully predict some of their future relationship outcomes. So one of the models that's popular in psychology is what they call the big five model of personality. It's extroversion, openness to experience. So kind of how interested you are in new things and new possibilities. Agreeableness, it's kind of how kind and, and nice you are. Conscientiousness, how much do you have your act together, basically? How organized are you? And neuroticism, or the opposite of that, emotional stability. And mm-hmm. when I look at those five factors, there's some really clear findings that emerge. And one of them is that my number one draft choice for a trait <laughs> in a partner would be emotional stability. And because it's so powerfully predictive of not only your satisfaction, but also your partner's satisfaction. So neurotic partners are less satisfied with the relationship. Their partners are also less satisfied with the relationship because neurotic folks tend to be moody, pessimistic, prone to anger. Just a lot of things that would make a relationship difficult. They're also more likely to divorce or, or, or break up. One of the most one of the studies that I really found fascinating was that when neurotic people pair with someone who's emotionally stable, you would think, okay, great. You got actually exactly the thing that you need. <laughs> You're kind of emotionally unstable and you found someone who can steady you. And what they found in that study over time was that it's almost like the neurotic partner couldn't stand the success <laughs> of it all. And so they would actually, the neurotic partner would be the one to terminate the relationship because they were just kind of uncomfortable with the, the stability in, in the partnership. So that would be the, the top factor. Another one would be agreeableness. And I, you know, sometimes people are like, okay, that makes sense. But I also push back on that because I say, I, I think like nice people actually get a bad rap. In dating. So let's imagine someone brings out a partner to meet the friends, the initial public offering of a partner to the friends. And that partner leaves to go get some drinks or something or whatever. And then there's that huddle that happens. So what do you think? And um, everyone kind of weighs in real quick. If people said, oh, I think he's really nice. You'd almost feel insulted. <laughs> that that was like the first thing that they that they said. But in fact, in these studies, what they find is that people who are nice, kind, agreeable folks have better relationships. They're more empathic 
they're more empathically accurate. So they'll kind of get what you're feeling more often. There's more relationship stability. There's more sexual satisfaction in those relationships. There's all these like benefits that come out of it, but it's this underrated trait when people select partners. Mm. The last one I'll, I'll bring up is novelty seeking, which is kind of this openness to experience. Novelty seekers are so much fun to date. <laughs> they're, they're kind of the best because you'll do all kinds of exciting things. You'll do all of these spontaneous things and it's just this thrilling kind of ride. They're also really likely to get absorbed in whatever's novel or new. And so they will be totally into you. Now that's all great. And it burns bright, but novelty seekers are also prone to boredom. So they'll get bored with things, including you. They're also prone to bad decisions. So they make a lot of impulsive decisions that can, and poorly, things with substances or infidelity or other things that can be real deal breakers in relationships. So, you know, there, there's a trait where, gosh, it's really attractive at the start. But if you're talking about a happily ever after, it's not a great trait to select on. And so if you take those three things and you prioritize those, then you would dramatically improve upon that 40% likelihood of finding a happily ever after. And you could bump up well above like a 70% chance. My estimation has been around 78% chance. So you, I think any of us would take that going from 40% to 78%. But when you watch what people actually do, like in speed dating studies or online dating studies, and things like neuroticism fall to like eighth or ninth in the priority list as far as what people are looking for in a partner. They tend to emphasize other things like physical attractiveness or a wealth, socioeconomic status that don't have as much of a return on investment in the long run. Mm, yeah. High zodiac sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. It looks like those aren't making the list, huh? No. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking that, like, as you're talking, a lot of my exes were novelty seekers, which is why they are exes. But you mentioned looks and money. And this is something you have chapters on both of these in your book. And I want to dive into them because I was telling my husband about this and especially the looks is those things not being as important as we think they are. And he's like, no, there's no way. And then I played him one of your interviews and he's like, oh, okay, it makes sense. So can you explain <laughs> why looks and money aren't as important as people think that they are? Yeah, sure. Well, and go on your partner too for being cool about that. Sometimes when people have that conversation, they're like, what, I'm not good looking or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, but no, it's, uh, they've done once again, like a, a dozens of studies on this and they see how does, what's the return on investment from having a good looking partner? And it's not that it's zero, but it's not great. There's a lot of better things to choose, like, mm -hmm. you know, someone who's kind or emotionally stable. So looks, you know, I always say, you don't want kissing your partner to feel like you're eating your veggies. You know, you want to be attracted to your partner, but the mistake that people make. Well, let's let's not use that reference because we actually love eating. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, let's, let's, use that yeah, yeah sorry. Let's say <laughs> like eating bland, overcooked veggies. There, there we go. There we go. Veggies <laughs> cooked the wrong way. Or, right. Uh, yeah. Burned vegetables. Yeah. Uh, so, so I forgot, forgot for a sec. This would be the wrong podcast to use that. <laughs> use that example. So, um, yes, we get it, though. We get we yeah, get something unpalatable. Let's, <laughs> right. let's, let's say 
Yeah, so you, you want to be attracted to your partner, certainly. I'm not saying it's, it's not important, but the mistake that people make is they try to maximize their value on that. So in other words, they're trying to get the hottest partner possible. And when you do that, you're just ruling out other possibilities. So for example, let's say someone wanted a partner on a scale of zero to 10 in their mind. Let's just use this as a, a simple example. They want someone who's a hotness level of eight or higher. That would mean that they would swipe left on 80% of the people. Now, they might not think much about that, but when I see somebody do that, all I can think about is that somebody's getting ruled out who was maybe of amazing character and who was really interesting and you know had all these other qualities that would have been fantastic in a long-term relationship, but they got swiped left because they were a six or a seven. You know, and and sometimes when people just slow down, and they think about it. They're like, you know what? The the range of folks I'm attracted to it's much broader than how I'm behaving in choosing a partner. And so I think that's why I would tell folks is looks is part of it, but let's just move that down the list and let's also be more open minded and inclusive about that. Then I think that would be the good advice. Uh, same thing happens with money or socioeconomic status. People try to maximize value in that sense. And um, the return on investment is not great from that either. And so when couples are strained, so, you know, let's say below the poverty line, for example, and I'm not making judgment about that, but I'm just saying that if a couple's below the poverty line, there's all kinds of stressful things that the couple has to deal with. And some of those things are systemic that, that come with that. But in that case, socioeconomic status does seem to matter. But once you get past, really, just, just a little bit past the poverty line, wealth doesn't really matter that much at all. And it really caps out at around $75,000 of household income. So, you know, believe it or not, having a partner who makes $75,000 versus $750,000 there's no difference in your long-term happiness or stability between those two income levels. Mm, wow. That, that's great to know. Love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was aiming for a millionaire, but look like that won't be happening. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, but I, I really enjoy what you said about, you know, aesthetics, because we've spoken about this on the podcast before. Just like, I think it's also important to question where these beauty ideals are coming from, where you're like swiping, you know, on these people that don't fit your ideal of beauty when those ideals are usually informed by like white beauty standards or fat phobia or racism. So I feel like it kind of also warrants a deeper conversation if you're like, oh, well, I'm only into like, I don't know, light skin guys or like I want someone who has a six pack. And it's like, well, you know, kind of start asking yourself some questions about that. I wanted to ask you about soulmates because i think as i'm getting older i'm seeing these conversations about soulmates dwindle thank god but when i was in my 20s it was like hey, i want to find my soulmate it was there were so many conversations about this and like i don't know i've always kind of questioned like what does that even mean <laughs> i don't know but how do you feel about this whole concept of a soulmate because i i feel like it kind of I think you can connect deeply to many people in your life. There's a difference between connecting to someone and then actually having a long-term relationship that makes sense. And I think that, you know, that can happen several times throughout the course of 
your life. But, you know, it's usually promoted as like this one person that's out in the world that, you know, you have to find and have this like, you know, just out of the world connection with. So thoughts? Yeah, it, it's kind of has this magic imbued, right? Yeah. The, the soulmate idea that there's going to be some mysterious universal force that brings you together. Yeah. And then everything's going to be We're both like levitating or something. That's exactly that's exactly yeah. what happens in a movie, right? <laughs> and uh, and as much as we're intelligent people and can be adults about things, those ideals, you know, believe it or not, we carry those over to adulthood. So Gallup did this really interesting poll, and they asked people, "Do you believe in soulmates?" This was this was about a decade ago, but the studies I've seen recently haven't changed much. About ninety-two percent of people said they believe in soulmates. So it is this really pervasive ideal, and it's that fate has delivered the ideal person for you. There's usually a one and only. And if someone found that, awesome. Like, I'm so happy for them that they that they did. But there are some potentially damaging things that come along with that. Because also included in the soulmate ideal are things we call irrational beliefs in relationships. So you also believe statements, for example like love will conquer all. Now, I hope that's true, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes it takes a little bit more than that. Sometimes it takes compromise and sacrifice and, you know, a lot of hard work to conquer something in a relationship. It's not just that that euphoric love is going to fix everything and make everything better. People who believe in soulmates are also more likely to believe in mind reading. So there's that ridiculous fight that I know I've had, so I'm, I'm not judging anybody here, but it usually comes out as, well, if you don't know what's wrong, I'm not going to tell you what's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which kind of embodies this idea, like, you should know what I'm thinking. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of that, you're just thinking, like, I actually don't know what's, what's, <laughs> what's mm-hmm. wrong here. I'd just like for someone to tell me. But that's also another destructive belief that comes along with the soulmate ideal. It would be nice if fate delivered someone to you and it wasn't your intentional behavior that was needed to make it happen. It would be nice if some magical loving force was this balm over all the challenges you'd have in your relationship. But, you know, I think anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows that's that's not the case. And so, yeah, you know, I think it's good for folks just to be like, hey, I, I, I would like to keep my mind open <laughs> to the magic that's to be had in romantic relationships, because I think there there is some and we should enjoy that. But also for everything else, let's apply some some hard work and some determination and commitment to make things work. And so I think as long as folks can accommodate both of those ideals, that's maybe a healthier way to move forward. Yeah. And I think with online dating, you know, a lot of us set ourselves up for disappointment because we're like, I didn't feel the spark on that first date. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like sometimes that takes a little bit of time. And so it's like you might be cutting yourself off from like so many great connections that, you know, maybe the first few dates were a little cold because, you know, the awkwardness of like meeting up with someone, especially someone that you meet online. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, should you feel a spark eventually? Like, when do you know if you should give this a shot for people who are, you know, out in the dating world? When do you know that maybe it's time to not follow up with this person? Because it's just not happening. Yeah, yeah, that's a... 
that's a tough one, right? And I think we've all been there trying to figure out not a great or like mediocre first date, maybe. And is it worth your time to have the second date or or the third date, even if the second date was a little bit better, but still mediocre? You know, we always say in social science, it takes three data points to make a trend. So maybe give it three shots mm-hmm. and, and see what happens. You know, there, there's a soulmate ideal and there's that spark idea. And that's, that's sure, sure nice when it, when it happens. But I also think it's really nice when you meet somebody. Maybe they're just a friend, not even the online date. And there's not that powerful attraction at the start. But as you get to know them, they start to become attractive to you as you get to know their personality and how the two of you interact together. I think that's sometimes even like more awesome, right? To find that kind of situation. And when we cut it off after the first date, then we preclude that opportunity from happening. So I I like to tell folks, hey, remember that other possibility where someone grows on you and how cool that is and maybe let that guide your, you know, your, your choices. The one other thing I'll say about that is Sometimes there's red flags that are deal breakers. And you've made, you know, along this idea of getting clear in your mind about what's important to you before you start making relationship decisions, it goes this idea of if you've come to certain things where you're like, I'm not going to tolerate that because I deserve more in my life. And that person has those qualities, then yeah, get out. It's just not worth your, not worth your time. So there's the mediocre or like just kind of good. That's one thing. But if it's the red flag and you're pretty positive about it, then then go ahead and cut it off. That's great advice. Because <laughs> I feel like a lot of people extend things that they shouldn't extend and they cut off things that maybe they mm-hmm. shouldn't cut off too yeah. early. So I feel like it's not instinctual and we really need to be potentially doing the opposite of what yeah. we usually do. <laughs> that's that's right. Just kind of fight our intuition a little bit on that. Interestingly, I think sometimes it's hardest for nice people to enact that latter advice to, you know, the person has a red flag quality. If, you know, nice, agreeable, kind people want to give people the benefit of the doubt, which is a good quality. But when it comes to dating, if someone has those non-negotiables, then yeah, it's not, there's, much better things you could be doing with your time. Run for the hills. Yeah, that's right. As fast as you can. As fast yeah. as you can. So in wrapping, what is one piece of advice for people looking to find a partner that they can be happy with long term? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think we would always do this in my class. Actually, I taught a class on psychology of romantic relationships. And at the end of the semester... I'd have students just old school on pen and paper list the 10 qualities they want in a romantic partner and just off the top of their head. And then I'd say, hey, now go back and rank order that list from what you, when you're thinking with your rational, careful mindset, what's most important for you for a happy and stable long-term relationship. And inevitably, those lists would look very different. And so for your listeners, I think something, believe it or not, that's really powerful to do, it just, it just takes a little bit of time is to go ahead and make that list of 10 qualities, characteristics you want in a romantic partner, and then just take the time to do the hard thinking about, hey, how do I rank order those things from most important to least important? 
and then keep it somewhere that you're not going to lose track of it. And if you're single, ask yourself, does this person actually meet these characteristics that are so critically important to me? And I think what people a lot of times find is that if they're not mindful about it, those things can fall to the wayside. That's great advice. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. For people who are interested in learning more about you or picking up a copy of your first book, I know you have another book as well, but can you let them know where to find you? Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me. This has been a real great conversation. And um, folks want to learn more, they can go to my website, which is tietoshiro.com. The book we've been talking about today is called The Science of Happily Ever After. And they can just find that where books, where books are sold. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Food Heaven podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to connect with us online. We're most active on the gram at Food Heaven, but we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Food Heaven Show. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. Yep, our podcast is released every Wednesday, and each week we take a deep dive into topics like health at every size, food and culture, intuitive eating, mental health, and body acceptance. If you're looking for a sustainable and inclusive path to wellness, come hang out with us to learn how to take care of yourself from the inside out. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.